Hello, Strange Stories UK here again. Thank you for downloading, listening. I'd like to say that I have to cut back on my podcast broadcasting as I'm working on another project at the moment. And of course, there is the day job. In the past, some of my podcasts have been long rambling affairs, which is the way I like them. But due to time constraints, these may have to take uh, two podcasts, although I prefer to tell a story in one uh, sitting. My output will probably be affected for the next few months, but I will continue to post podcasts every two weeks with a paranormal broadcast every third podcast. But podcasts may be shorter for the next couple of months. Anyhow, today's podcast is Series 4, Episode 24, and I'm calling this one Dorset, Scandal and Death at Piddle Trenthide. Piddle Trenthide is a classic Thomas Hardy territory, and the events we are to tell here would have made a good material for one of his novels. Piddle Trenthide is a small village eight miles north of Dorchester. In the Doomsday Book, it was quite a significant village of 70 households, but a millennium later, it's only grown to less than 300 households. It is very rural, with not a lot of entertainments nearby. The Saxon name was Uppidellen, and its present name of Piddle-Trenthide comes from its description in the Doomsday Book, back in 1086 meaning an estate of 30 hides on the River Piddle, a hide being a measurement of land sufficient to support a family. The area hasn't had a great impact on history. There was a myth of a local witch who turned herself into a white hare and ran around the village street at night when the moon was full. Checking the internet over things to do in Piddle Trent Hyde, there wasn't a great deal on offer, In nearby Old Henley Farm, there is a badger watch. This is badger country. I once stayed at a local farm B&B and the woods seemed alive with badgers in the late spring. Anyhow, this story dates back to 1942, during wartime. There was a large army camp nearby and Piddletrent Hyde was overrun with soldiers at times. The roads around the village cross had to be built up with concrete and widened to withstand the weight and the size of the tanks. When the D-Day invasion was about to commence, convoys lasting all day and all night passed through the village. There were air raids over the village as the camp was a target for the Germans. The camp was camouflaged and a dummy camp was built nearby to lure away the German air raids. A plus point about living in a village during wartime when food was in short supply was that most people had a few chickens in their back gardens. There was always a rabbit and in the spring rook pie and lamb's tails. People also grew a lot of vegetables in their gardens and there was always a trout to be caught in the river piddle. The army camp housed Uganda nations in 1972 after Idi Amin expelled them their children attending the village school. The army camp now is an industrial estate 
and a summer gypsy camp. Frederick Charles Davis, or Fred Davis, was born in Piddletrent Hyde in 1906. In 1931, he married Frieda Annie Hardy, and by 1942, they owned the Golden Grain Bakery, which had a shop attached. They had three children. Rosemary Ann was aged nine in 1942. Christine Mary was aged six, and Normal Basil was aged four. Frieda Davis died on the 9th of August 1942 after an illness that had lasted about two months. Her husband, Fred, seemed to want the best for his wife and he was by most accounts a good provider for the family and seemed popular within the village. However, there was local gossip about Fred Davis having affairs with local women. Frieda was buried in the churchyard at Piddletrent Hyde on the 12th of August 1942. The next month, Lewis Aubrey Strickland, a local Piddletrent Hyde man, was murdered in the village. His body was found close to the Golden Grain Bakery, and the last building the dead man was known to have visited was the Golden Grain Bakery, or the shop attached to it. After questioning Fred Davis, the police did not consider Fred a suspect. But within a week, he was suspect number one. And ten days after the murder, he was arrested for the murder of Lewis, or Lou, Strickland. This caused the police to re-examine the death of Frieda Davis. Chief Inspector Thorpe, from New Scotland Yard, on the 1st of October 1942 reported that Frieda Davis had been working on a bread round during the summer of 1942 and during this time had been having attacks of stomach pains and vomiting. A Dr Kinnear of Puddletown had on occasions given her morphia as the attacks had been so bad. On the 5th of October 1942, Detective Thorpe reported the death of Frieda Davis was suspicious and he suspected Fred Davis of killing his wife. Fred had been engaged two months after her death to his housekeeper's daughter, who Fred had known since she was a child, and who was much younger than him. Police were now carrying out an investigation into Frieda's death. The name of uh, Fred's fiance was Nellie Ford. Then police discovered that Fred Davis had affairs with other women when his wife was still alive and after she had died. It was also claimed that Fred had been very close to a Miss Harvey when his young fiancée Nellie Ford was away at a women's air force base as she was serving in the war effort. Fred Davis seemed to have a complicated sex life and while others were away on service Fred seemed to be taking advantage. The police seemed to suspect that Frieda was poisoned and they started investigations into poisons sold by local traders. They searched under the name, there's a poison book in these shops, and they searched under the names of Davis, Ford, Cuff, Burden, Goodland, Strickland, all who were associates of Fred Davis. Fred 
Davis's shop sold bread, confectionery, tobacco, paraffin oil and several other sundries including a brand of rat poison called Kill Oil and another one called Rodine Red Squill. Both of these poisons would produce symptoms such as Frieda Davis died of. On the 9th of October 1942, there was a statement given by Robert Horton, a doctor, who was called by Dr Kinnear to examine Miss Davis, Frieda Davis, at a home on the 28th of July for a second opinion. Kinnear thought that she may have goldstones or a duodenal ulcer, an open sore in her digestive uh, system. Frieda complained of a violent pain in her stomach and vomiting for the previous six weeks. She had felt ill and was losing weight. She had not been previously ill the last time the doctor saw her when she gave birth to her last child. But she had been in bed for a week and was being cared for by her mother and Mrs Hardy of Churchland, Piddletrendhide. So, the story of Frieda's illness. Frieda said that she'd been working very hard on the bread round, delivering bread. X-rays were arranged at Dorchester Hospital on the 24th and 25th of July, but she'd been too ill to travel to the hospital. Doctors gave her a foot examination, but they could come to no definite diagnosis. There was no evidence of disease. On the 28th of July 1942, Frieda was admitted to hospital. She was being treated by a doctor who noticed that her stools were bright red, bloody, which were not suggestive of ulcers as expected in her condition. What was suspicious was that Frieda stopped vomiting while she was in hospital. Her symptoms were consistent with arsenic poisoning. When Frieda died, there was a diagnosis of ulcerative colitis. This is a disease of the large intestine when it gets inflamed and ulcers appear. It's a lifelong illness with no specific cause or cure. It was a difficult disease to live with. Symptoms included stomach cramps, diarrhoea, symptoms that could be similar with being poisoned. The doctors said that they could not be certain of the diagnosis. It was the nearest that they could get. Specimens of Frieda's stools were sent to a pathology laboratory, but they could not find the organisms that would have been expected in a case of ulcerative colitis, which suggested that this was not the illness that she was suffering. Doctors gave Frieda sedatives and transfusions of blood, but blood continued to be in her stools. Earlier attempts at a diagnosis and a second opinion were unable to give a, di a definite diagnosis. Frieda was very anemic, thin and wasted with a rapid pulse. Her diet was pulped apples, junket, which is a milk-based, um, also known as curds and whey, citrated milk and Benga's food, which is an invalid food, a bit like dried milk that needs to be hydrated. Davis's, Frieda Davis's condition had worsened and she died on the 9th of August in the evening with Fred by her bedside.
Frieda was 32 years of age. The death certificate was signed by Dr. Tasker, who decided that death was due to ulcerative colitis. There was no post-mortem. Surprising, as she was only 32, and they could not be sure of the cause of death. But I suppose there was a war taking place, and time, resources and manpower were in short supply. However, now in September 1942, Fred had been charged with murder. Doctors now expressed a view that possibly Frieda had been poisoned. On the 11th of October 1942, police took a statement from Nellie Ford, who was aged 20 and was based at RAF Padgate near Warrington. She told how she'd worked for Fred Davis for almost four years before joining the WAF in July 1941. She worked in the shop and helped in the house looking after Fred and Frieda's three young children. Frieda Davis drove one of the delivery vans and was always very busy and had no time to do the housework. The bread round took around six hours each day. After Mrs Davis died, Nellie claimed that she and Fred started writing to each other and this developed into a relationship and they agreed to marry. Nellie suspects it was because he needed a mother for the children, although Fred told her that he loved her. The Saturday after they became engaged, Fred was arrested by the police. Nellie insisted there had been nothing improper between them while Frieda Davis was alive. Since Fred had been on remand, they continued writing to each other. In one letter, he told her of a green package in his writing desk, which he wanted to be moved. He instructed Nellie to put it in his wardrobe. Nellie was living at the house as Fred had given her permission to be in charge of it, looking after the children and helping run the business. She managed to get extended leave from the WAF and later a discharge on compassionate grounds. Nellie wrote to Fred about village gossip concerning Frieda's death and rumours that the police were going to exhume the body of Frieda. Nellie was questioned by the police and told them that she visited Frieda when she was in hospital two or three times when Nellie was on leave in July 1942. When she told her mother about Frederick and her getting engaged, her mother made no comment. However, Nellie thought that her mother was pleased to have her home from the WAF. Dr Kinnear of Puddletown made a statement on the 10th of October. He had known Frieda for about 10 years. She had always been a healthy woman, but had suffered bleeding from piles which developed as a result of childbirth nine years previously. He had never examined her physically, just taking her word. He gave her suppositories as she said that they had helped. The piles may have accounted for the blood in her stools. On the 12th of October, Bessie Hardy who was Frieda's mother, who was aged 58, told police that Frieda was her eldest child and had always had a good relationship with Nellie Ford. On the 26th of October, Chief Inspector Thorpe made an announcement. He explained how on the 18th of September he had gone with Detective Griffin to investigate the death of Lewis Aubrey, Strickland, the 42-year-old farm labourer whose body was found under a hedge 
at Peddletrent Hyde at 3.35am on Thursday the 17th of September 1942. As a result of this, Dr Horton had come to see Thorpe to say that he was not happy with the cause of death on Frieda's death certificate. He said that Dr Tasker, who signed the death certificate, had also had concerns, as there were a number of unusual symptoms, and now he thought that she may have died as a result of poisoning, conceivably arsenic. After further discussions, it was decided that the cause of death may more likely be arsenic poisoning than the stated ulcerative colitis. Mrs Dorothy Ford had been working at the Davis home for 12 years since 1930. She was a part-time charlady, which means cleaner, and later a full-time housekeeper. Dorothy had lived in the village for many years. Her husband, Frederick George Ford, died in a car accident in 1941. She had three adult daughters, two married, Joyce, who was aged 24, and Grace, who was aged 22, and the youngest, Nellie, who was aged 20, and who was considered not unattractive by Detective Thorpe, who said that village gossip had thought that she and Davis were having an affair. They became engaged seven weeks after Frieda's death. Nellie Ford was on leave when Frieda Davis first became ill, and Nellie looked after her for the first five days of illness. When Nellie had to return to the RAF base, Frieda's mother, Mrs Hardy, started to look after her. Fred Davis had also been on intimate terms with Mrs Strickland for four or five years. Mrs Strickland, of course, being the wife of Lou Strickland, the man shot in September. Detective Thorpe thought that Fred Davis was having sex both with Mrs Strickland and Nellie Ford, while his wife was in hospital. Dorothy Ford, Davis's housekeeper, was aged 46, and described by Thorpe as hard and secretive. Thorpe thought that Dorothy Ford was in a desperate financial state, and Davis, who was reasonably well off, and engaged to her daughter Nellie, and she was anxious to make that match work. There were searches through Davis's property looking for poisons, but nothing obvious was found. Thorpe said that arsenic was commonly used in the village for purposes such as sheep dipping. Thorpe thought that it would be relatively easy to obtain arsenic in the village. Thorpe thought that the body should be exhumed, the body of Frieda, as he put it to be fair to Fred Davis and Nellie Ford. Most people in the village were convinced that Mrs. Frieda Davis was poisoned. There was some dithering over whether an exhumation should take place. Thorpe said that the situation is most unsatisfactory as the air needs to be cleared and the body needs to be examined. On the 10th of November, the Home Office gave permission for an exhumation. The body was dug up on the 12th of November. On the 20th of November 1942, Bernard Spilsbury, the Home Office pathologist, gave his report, saying that the grave was six feet deep, dug in dry chalk soil. Spilsbury took samples of the soil. 
there was, there was no odour in the grave. The coffin was taken to Dorchester Hospital. The coffin was a good quality one made of elm and it was airtight. When the coffin was opened, there was no great putrefaction or a distinctive odour. Frida's body was described as having small features, high cheekbones with dark brown hair going grey at the sides. It was a well-nourished body, 5 foot 2 inches. The interior of the coffin was dry. There were numerous small insects alive on the body. The skin was dry and the colour ranging from yellow to dark brown. There was a growth of white mould on some parts of the body. The front teeth were missing, but the, da- the back teeth were in place. There were no dentures present with the body. Internally, all the organs seemed healthy. There was no sign of disease of the small intestine. The large intestine showed that Frida had been suffering from acute ulcerative colitis. The heart, liver and lungs were all slightly shrunken. There was evidence of previous TB, tuberculosis. Spilsby took samples of all the organs and on November the 13th these were sent for analysis at St Mary's Hospital at Paddington. Spilsby's conclusion was the body had suffered from acute ulcerative colitis. He was unable to exclude the possibility of poisoning. Later Spilsby said there was possible evidence of poisoning but he could not be sure. The body was reinterred into the grave on the same day it was exhumed. That was on the 12th of November. On the 23rd of December 1942, the senior official analysis to the Home Office submitted his report on the 14 jars that he was analysing for poison. He said that as the deceased was in hospital from July the 28th to her death on August the 9th, he was assuming that no poison were consumed then, so he did not test for poisons that were rapidly eliminated or were decomposed in the body. He was searching for signs of poisoning by metals, and in particular arsenic, anatomy and mercury. He detected no evidence of poison, but was unable to say definitely that the deceased received no arsenic for at least three months prior to her death. The Home Office report concluded that it would appear that death was due to natural causes. However, during December 1942, Fred Davis was still in a lot of trouble, being on remand for the po- in prison for the murder of Lou Strickland. Lewis Aubrey Strickland of Piddletrentide was murdered, or shot, on the, 9th, on the 16th of September 1942. Lou Strickland came from a large local family. He had three brothers and three sisters. He was a farm labourer who had previously been a rabbit catcher and who had served in the First World War. In 1942 he was a member of the Home Guard. Lou had married Muriel Harriet Smith who was born on the 2nd of July 1902 in Southampton and they married during January 1931. On Wednesday the 16th of September 1942 Strickland left home at 8pm to buy cigarettes at the shop of Fred Davis. It was a 10 minute walk along the B3143 road. 
he left his wife listening to the popular Victor Sylvester band programme on the radio. Mr Arthur Presley, a carter, had seen Strickland walking at about 8pm along Swan Lane towards the main road, where he would turn right in the direction of the shop. Another villager, Alfred Riggs, saw Lou Strickland on the main road walking towards the shop a little later. Just after her husband had left to buy cigarettes, Muriel, his wife, secretly met a soldier from the Piddle Trent Hyde military camp for a kiss and a cuddle. They made arrangements to meet the next evening. Muriel had a number of affairs with local men and had the reputation as a result. Her husband may have suspected something, but by all accounts they had a happy marriage. Muriel said her husband was easy to get along with. He gave her all his wages and just asked for money as he needed it, usually for cigarettes. Muriel had a long-term affair with Fred Davis. She would go out with him when he was delivering bread on his rounds. They would stop at quiet places to be alone. At one time her husband asked her if she was sweet on Fred Davis, but she brushed away the suggestion and her husband forgot about it. Davis and his wife would sometimes spend the evening playing Monopoly with Lou and Muriel. After Lou bought the cigarettes at the shop in the Golden Grain Bakery, he was not seen alive again. A search was organised by his wife Muriel Strickland, who had gone to call on a Mr Henry Green, a local farmer and justice of the peace and a family friend. He lived at the big house Hope Farm in Swan Lane. Muriel had been calling on Henry Green each night for nearly a month to dress a cut on his hand from a circular saw. His wife, who had poor eyesight, was unable to see properly to do the dressing. Henry Green was a well-respected man in the village and whose son was friendly with the Stricklands. Henry Green owned the cottage that the Stricklands lived in. After Muriel roused Mr Green... He got dressed and they went to Fred Davis's shop to ask if Strickland had been in the previous evening to buy tobacco. The bakery worked through the night baking. Davis, who was still up, said he had not seen him but maybe Mrs Ford had served him. He would ask her in the morning. Dorothy Ford was the widow who lived at the ba- near the bakery and had helped at the Davis household for some time. Since Frieda died in August, Dorothy had been a full-time housekeeper, arriving at 8pm and often staying until 10pm in the evening. Green and Muriel found no trace of Lou Strickland. It was decided that Muriel was to go back home. Henry Green would continue searching for Lou, as Muriel was worried that he may have been struck by a car. Henry Green found Lou's body by torchlight at about 330 in the lane, about 400 metres from Swan Lane. The body was partly hidden under a hedge. Green said it looked as if Lou had just collapsed. This was the junction of Chapel Lane and Dark Lane. Chapel Lane was the first turning past the Golden Grain Bakery. Dark Lane is narrow with grass covered and it's the first turning down Chapel Lane and it ran from the water meadows of the nearby River Piddle. Popular for courting couples, apparently. Green called in at the Davis shop as Davis was still up and the lights were on and told him what he had found. 
Green said that Davis appeared shocked at the news. Fred Davis's shop was on the main road of the village, the B3143. The body was found in the lane around the corner from the bakehouse and the shop of Fred Davis. Green then went to see Muriel Strickland and told her that things looked pretty bad. Green then took his bicycle to inform the local village constable, PC Webb, and as PC Webb dressed, Green also informed Percy Strickland, who was Lou's brother. The three of them cycled back to where the body was found at Dark Lane. Percy examined the body and found a small wound on the left shoulder. Dr Pickett arrived and the police detective Howe. They organised the body to be photographed and then placed in the new dairy building that Henry Green owned in Chapel Lane. Later the body was taken to Dorchester Hospital. Henry Green thought that Lou had either been disturbed somebody poaching or had been killed because of jealousy. Henry Green knew most things that happened in the village and was aware of village gossip that Charles Burton and Frederick Davis, amongst others, had affairs with Mural Strickland as they visited her at her home when her husband was away. What the police found odd was that Strickland's cap was found in the road between Strickland's house and the shop at four, at 10.40pm on the night of his death, which was 300 yards away from the body. The cap was found by Ted Baker, who was a baker, but he wasn't connected with Fred Davis's Golden Grain Bakery. Fred Davis's bakery and shop were on the same side of the road as the public house, the European Inn, but before you reached Chapel Lane. The public house, the European Inn, has recently closed and it's probably private housing as we speak. PC Webb went to the shop of Fred Davis to phone for the doctor. Davis said to Webb that he was said to come here for some cigarettes, but I don't know because I wasn't here. I won't know until Mrs Ford tells us as she probably served him. Davis made PC Webb a cup of tea. Detective Superintendent Howe arrived just before 7am on the 17th of September to take charge of the scene. The body was searched and a packet of 20 woodbines and some loose change was found. The morning the body was discovered, Green returned with PC Webb and Percy Harold Strickland, the brother of Percy, of, of, um, of Lewis. They returned to Mural Strickland and broke the news to her that her husband was dead. Later that morning, Howe interviewed Dorothy Ford, who confirmed that Strickland had called into the shop at about 8.30 and bought cigarettes. On Friday the 18th of September, a post-mortem was carried out on Lou Strickland. This revealed that Strickland was killed by a bullet, the cause of death being shock and internal bleeding. The bullet passed through the left collarbone, traversed both lungs and almost exited the body between the 7th and 8th rib, being lodged in his back muscles. There was little blood. It seemed that Strickland was shot at close quarters and there were burn marks on his jacket. It appeared that he was shot by somebody standing above him. It was thought that Strickland would have died within one minute of being shot and the body had been moved, probably carried. 
Given the information that was known when Strickland was last seen, the time of his last meal, it was estimated that he was shot between 8.30 and 9.30pm. Lou Strickland was described as thick-set, a well-developed, healthy, middle-aged man, about uh, 5 foot 4.5 inches tall, and a single nickel-coated revolver, .38 bullet had killed him. Detective Howe thought that as the large military camp was situated a mile from the village, many soldiers from the camp visited the village at night, and the dark lanes around the village were used by soldiers and their lady friends, especially a field next to where Strickland's body was found, and perhaps that had something to do with the shooting. There was a gap in the hedge directly opposite where the body was found, and the angle of the shooting and the fact that the bullet was of type only used by armed forces suggested that Strickland had been killed by a soldier. That was the angle that first taken by Detective Sergeant Howell. The awkward evidence being that of Strickland's cap which was found so far away from his body, towards his home. This didn't make any sense. On Saturday the 19th of September, Howe interviewed Muriel Harriet Strickland to gain some family history. She made a long written statement, but there was nothing of any consequence. Howe asked her about the rumours about her affair with men in the village. Muriel replied that my husband had no reason to be jealous of me. As I've already told you, we were perfectly happy. She went on to say that her husband normally was normal sexually, but as she suffered from sugar diabetes, she refused him intercourse on several occasions. She could offer no suggestion as to how her husband met her death, his death. On the same day with Sergeant Griffin, Dorothy Ford was interviewed at the shop. She appeared normal in every way, saying that she served Strickland. Fred Davis was not there, and she hoped that it would soon be cleared up. She said it was terrible. First my husband is killed in an accident, then Mrs Davis died, and now this. Fred Davis, who was present, broke into the conversation by saying, I wish I could help. I didn't see Strickland that night. No suspicion was attached to Fred or Dorothy, as both seemed anxious to help. Monday the 21st of September was the day that Lou Strickland was buried. D.I. Howe interviewed both Dorothy Ford and Fred Davis again, although neither this time as a suspect. On Wednesday the 23rd of September, William Valance, a cowman of Jersey Cottage, was interviewed by the police and said that at 8.30pm he went to Davis's shop to buy some bicarbonate of soda. He saw Davis running up the garden from the garden shed, puffing and blowing. Valance said, Hello, what's up? Davis replied that he'd been running after the dog. He had an Alsatian. Valance had no reason to doubt Davis, but when he asked for the bicarbonate of soda, David asked if he could wait until the morning, which struck Valance as odd. Howell made inquiries about Mrs Strickland and found that she had been friendly with a number of local men, including Davis. Howell decided to interview her again. 
After a difficult interview, she admitted to affairs with at least four local men. Howe said he was interested in her affair with Davis. Muriel, who was 40 years of age, had been married to Lou since she was 27. She said she'd been friendly with Davis for four or five years, and intercourse had taken place on many occasions, both at her home and elsewhere. The last time being in August 1942, soon after his wife had died. Muriel said that she did not think her husband knew of her relationship with Davis, although he may have had a suspicion as he asked her if he had a soft spot for Davis, as he knew they'd been together in Davis's bread van when they were doing the rounds. She said that her husband, when he went to the shop on the 16th of September to buy cigarettes, he was behaving perfectly normally. On the 26th of September, 1942, Howe interviewed Charles Burden. He was aged 23 and employed as a driver and a roundsman by Davis. He was also having an affair with Muriel Strickland. He had a sound alibi, but Howe discovered that on the night that Strickland was killed, Davis, Fred Davis, had not left out equipment to make a cup of tea for the people who were baking overnight. Davis always left out tea, or a tea-making kit, for the workers, and it was most unusual that he had forgot that night, the night Strickland had died. By this time, Howe had Davis as a suspect, due to the tea-making equipment, the valance incident, and his shop was the last place that Strickland had been seen. And also there was Davis's affair with Strickland's wife. It was Sunday morning on the 27th of September at 10 past 11 in the morning when D.S. Griffin called on Fred Davis who was standing outside the bakehouse. Griffin told Davis that Chief Inspector Thorpe wanted to see him at Dorchester Police Station. Davis said that he was on his way to church but it didn't matter as he was late anyway. Davis was interviewed by Howe and Griffin at Dorchester Police Station. In the early stages of the interview, Davis denied everything. He said that he had not served Lou Strickland. He had been having a shave and a wash, and he had not been out the house that day as he had been suffering from shingles. During the interview, Davis broke down and admitted that he had shot Strickland. The breakthrough came when Day, when Howe had asked Davis why he had not left out tea-making equipment at the bakehouse on the night of the shooting. Davis replied, You have me there. I'd forgotten all about that until now. He became agitated, and after a long pause, with his head between his knees, he said, I shot him. I thought I got rid of any clue that might have thrown suspicion on us. But I can tell you now something. It was an accident. I realised how foolish it was to do what we did. I wish we had phoned the police at the time. Davis then told the police how Strickland had come to be shot. Davis was demonstrating a revolver he had bought from a soldier, a private Mans of Euston at the military camp. Mans was now serving in the war in the Middle East. The gun cost him three pound along with eight rounds. In his words, Fred Davis explained, Lou Strickland bought 20 woodbine cigarettes and a box of matches. Lou called in three or four times a week to buy cigarettes. I invited him into the dining room where I was working on books and ledgers. 
Lou Strickland was sitting in a low armchair, and I was sitting at the bureau, and opened the drawer to get another account book out. As I did so, a revolver came into view. Strickland said, What have you got there? I said, Haven't you seen one of these before? Lou said, No. I took it from the drawer and handed it to him. He looked at it for a few moments and handed it back to me, after pretending to take aim at a few objects in the room. I told him that the soldier who I'd bought the gun from said the army practice was to bring the gun upwards. The same, sol- uh, shol- the same soldier said that I wouldn't be able to hit a barn door with at least the first 50 shots. Strickland said that he thought that he could hit an object better if he brought the gun gown- downwards instead of upwards. Mrs Ford, who had been upstairs listening to Victor Sylvester's band programme on the radio, had entered the room at this time, according to Davis. Strickland said to Davis that it wasn't much use having a gun if he had nothing to put it in it. Davis said he had ammunition. He got the bullets out for Lou to examine. Lou gave the bullets back, and Davis said, like a fool, I put a bullet in the chamber. Davis said he thought he'd put the bullet in the third chamber, and as he held the gun towards Strickland, Davis said in a statement to the police, I held the revolver a few inches from his shoulder and pulled the trigger expecting to fire on an empty chamber, but there was a loud report. Strickland sat up and laughed, looking at me straight, saying, I know that was a blank, but his laugh made me feel funny. Lou stood up and collapsed. Davis caught him and helped him back into the armchair. Lou clenched his hands and then went limp. There wasn't much blood, just a reddish hole in his shirt. Davis said that Dorothy Ford was in the room and said, Whatever shall we do? Davis thought that Dorothy said, We'll have to get him out. Davis grabbed Lou's trouser belt with his right hand from behind and with his left hand held his arm over his shoulder. Dorothy took his feet. They carried Strickland's body through the back garden, through a piggery that was now called the orchard, over the gate into the chapel lane. They left the body at the junction with Dark Lane. It was about 8.40. It was quite dark. Nobody saw them. On returning to the house, as he ran up the garden path back to the house, Mr Valance saw Fred Davis and said he wanted some bicarbonate of soda. Fred said, can it wait till morning? Everything's now locked up. Davis continued that we found Strickland's cap. Dorothy said, take it up the road. So I went taking the cap, the revolver and some bullets and walked towards Strickland's house. I threw his cap in the road near Swan Lane and climbed into a field on the opposite side of the road and walked to a copse and got rid of the gun and the bullets. The next day I went back and found the revolver and put it down a rabbit hole in Parsons Field. Davis also told them about his affair with Muriel Strickland. Fred Davis said he had known Muriel for about 12 years. She was rather a loose sort of woman. Over the years they occasionally had sexual intercourse, the last time being when Muriel came out of hospital in the summer. Fred had gone to collect some shredded wheat her husband was out working late at the, at the harvest, Fred and Muriel had sex in the kitchen. 
Davis took the police to retrieve the revolver and the bullets. Detectives Howe, Thorpe and Griffin walked with Davis to the rabbit hole where he had hidden the gun at Parsons Field, which was opposite the pub, the European Inn. On the way back, Davis showed the police where he had left Lou Strickland's cap. By chance, they met Dorothy Ford on the road, walking back to the shop. Davis told her that he had told the police everything, and she should do the same. The policeman said that she turned white and nodded. Returning to the shop and the bakehouse, Davis went through again what happened on the night Lou was shot. Dorothy Ford was cautioned. She said that she had told some awful lies, but now she wanted to tell the truth. Her story confirmed what Davis had said, although there were a few minor discrepancies. She said she was in the room at the same time, sewing and not paying much attention to the two men in the room, until she was shocked at the gun going off. The police suspected that Dorothy was not in the room. They still had their suspicions. The police thought about how well planned they were in removing the body. The police were also concerned about different accounts given by Davis and Ford regarding the position of the body after the shooting and where Ford was supposed to be in the room at the time of the shooting. The police had the view that Dorothy Ford had already lied about sending cigarettes to Lou Strickland and they believed that that she could still not be telling the truth. The police thought that as Dorothy's youngest daughter was engaged to Davis, who was comparatively well off, they thought that Dorothy would do anything to help Davis. Davis and Ford were taken to Dorchester Police Station to make their statements. Davis admitted, Fred Davis admitted to the affair with Lou Strickland's wife, but said that this was before his wife's death. Everyone was on good friendly terms, and the Stricklands would come to Davis's house to play the board game Monopoly, and sometimes Fred employed Lou Strickland to do work for him. He had recently paid him to plant potatoes. On Monday the 28th of September 1942, Fred Davis, the widower, aged 36, master baker and tobacconist of the village of Pittletrenthide, was charged with what he did between 8pm on the 16th of September 1942 and 5am on the 17th of September 1942, murder Lewis Aubrey Strickland. And on the same day, Mrs. Dorothy Maud Ford, a widow aged 46 and Davis's housekeeper, was charged with giving comfort, harbour and assistance to Fred Davis, knowing that he had committed murder. Both were remanded in custody. The police came across another witness on the Wednesday when they took a statement from Lance Sergeant Herbert Davis of the 102nd Field Regiment who was based at that time at Piddle Trent Hyde Camp. He said that at about 11.30 on the 16th of September, the night of the shooting, he was walking through the village on his way back to camp. Just after passing the European Inn, about 100 metres from the Davis's uh, shop, he saw a man standing by the road. The man asking for a light for a cigarette. He then commented that the soldier was late getting back. The soldier said that they could stay out until midnight. The man said he was going in the same direction and they walked together to the new inn public house in the village. 
While they were walking together, the man asked if the soldier had heard about the murder in the village that night. Sergeant Davis asked, Where was the murder? And he was given the reply, Oh, somewhere here in this district. The following morning, Sergeant Davis was out in his army truck, which broke down. By chance, Fred Davis was passing in his bread van and stopped to ask what the problem was. Sergeant Davis recognised the man from the previous night and said, Hello, have they found the murderer yet? At this, the man, Fred Davis, coloured up and walked off without answering. Police continued to build their case against Davis and Ford. The letters that they'd sent and received were read. The police were hoping to discover some important evidence. They must have been a little disappointed. Here are the headlights, head, the highlights of uh, Dorothy Ford's letters first. On the 29th of October 1942, writing to Mrs Newman, she said, Oh dear, if only he had put his hand on the phone and rung the police and the doctor instead of asking me to help him outside with him. I would never had all this pain and suffering. Then on the 4th of November, writing to Fred Davis, I thought so many times, why didn't you send for the doctor and the police? Another letter, which was undated, sent to her daughters. She said, now my dears, I've written to Mr Aldridge, who was her solicitor, and I've told him the truth and what happened. On the 10th of November, writing to a Mrs E.A. Davis, who I think was Fred's mother, if only he put his hand on the phone and rung the police and doctor instead of asking me to carry out the deceased man with him, it would have been so much better for him. Fred said in his statement that he thinks it was me who said about taking him outside. I don't think that the deceased was hurt at first. Then Fred told me he was. And then he was dead. I said, oh dear, whatever can we do? Fred said, well, you can help me carry him outside. In my fright, I didn't realise what a serious thing it was to take him. I'll never forget how ill I felt that night. Fred came to see me the next morning to say that they had found the deceased and the police had asked him what had, if he had been in the shop for cigarettes. And he told the police that he hadn't seen him, that it must have been me. Dorothy Ford, that had served him. The police want now want to question me. I was too terrified to say the truth and just told them what Fred had told me to say. After each day, I just felt worse. I felt that I couldn't carry on. Then, on the 10th of November, to her daughter, a Mrs Cuff, she said, I want the truth to come out in court. I know that Fred may have had a different opinion towards me and you and the girls. I do not suggest that taking the deceased outside, it was Fred. He just wants me to have, he just wants to have the whip in his hand and stand and drive everybody. Fred told me that morning the body was found what to say, what was sold, what money I was to give in change and I had to give back. Nellie Ford wrote to her mother, telling her to tell the whole truth. Nellie told her mother that the family were the only ones truly interested in her benefit and she should just think of herself. 
She said that her solicitor, Mr Aldridge, just pretends he wants the best for you both, but really just wants the best for Fred, as he was the one paying the bills. Later, when she learnt that her mother was changing her statement and the solicitor, Mr Aldridge, was coming to see her, Nellie Ford commented that instead of bottling up as you have done for so long, it would be much better if he'd just tell him everything. Dorothy had to push Mr Aldridge to change her statement as he said that it was Fred Davis paying for the uh, defence. Dorothy had applied for legal aid but was advised that more interest in her case would be taken if she was paying for a solicitor. So it was arranged that Fred would pay. Possibly Fred felt he had more control over the situation if his solicitor represented them both. Nellie was keeping her options open. She was also sending loving letters to Fred Davis, even after she had learnt about his probable affair with a Miss Harvey. Nellie had been persuaded to forget about Miss Harvey, the Miss Harvey business, in case the newspapers got to hear about it. Fred Davis was also keeping his op- options open. He was still writing to Miss Harvey while he was in prison. Davis and Ford shared the solicitor. They were being defended by Mr Aldridge, who was trying to claim that the witness statement taken from Fred and Dorothy were improperly obtained at the preliminary court hearing on the 2nd of December 1942, when they were being charged. Aldridge was overawed by a judge. A week later, Sergeant Ivor Fish wrote to the Assistant Chief Constable to say that he had been informed by Harry Green, the local Justice of the Peace of Hope Farm, Piddletrenhide, that Dorothy Ford had made a new statement to her solicitor, Mr Aldridge. Harry Green had been told by Mrs Joyce Cuff, Dorothy's daughter, that owing to a difference between Alan Davis, who was Fred's father, and Dorothy's daughters, she had wanted to make a fresh statement. In the fresh statement, Dorothy Ford said she was not in the room when Stickman was shot. She was upstairs. Other information came forward. Mr Mitchell, who was the husband of Grace Ford, the other daughter, was home on leave at the time and staying next door to Mrs Ford's house. He saw Fred Davis coming up along the path of Mrs Ford's house at about 5am, just after Strickland's body was found, suggesting that they were discussing events and getting a story together. On the 22nd of December there was a trial at Winchester Crown Court. Both defendants pleaded not guilty to the accounts in the indictment. Mr Caswell was the defence for Davis. Scott Henderson was the defence for Dorothy. Robertson Pratt were leading the prosecution. Both Davis and Ford were said to hold up well under cross-examination, but the prosecution had found flaws in the defence. The judge had tried to convince the defence to persuade Fred to plead guilty to manslaughter. The judge, in his summing up, said they could only find Dorothy guilty if they found Fred guilty of manslaughter with what which he was being charged with. At the end of the trial, just two days before Christmas, it was clear that the judge wanted Davis convicted of manslaughter. But after 45 minutes, the jury found them both not guilty. They decided that the shooting was accidental.
There was not enough evidence to convict Fred Davis. But doubt still remained. I don't know what happened to Fred Davis after this. I did try to make some research about Fred Davis and the Golden Grain Bakery, but couldn't find anything. So that concludes today's uh, podcast. I'd like to thank Damselfly for providing the background music. I'd like to thank you for listening. And until next time, I'll say goodbye. <laughs>